It's crazy. All right. Uh, so film and theology is where we start. Our minds are always on. You can't shut them off. So we've got to look at uh, everything we watch and how it actually affects us and what they're trying to say. So tonight we're going to watch Oz the Great and Powerful. Uh, according to Metacritic, this movie is full of mixed reviews. It scored uh, only 44 out of 100 based on critic reviews, uh, 6.2 out of 10 according to moviegoers. So moviegoers like it a little more than critics, and moviegoers are, are a little more uh, forgiving than critics. Uh, for perspective, After Earth got 33 out of 100. The Hangover 3 got 30 out of 100. Scary Movie 5 got 11 out of 100. And Star Trek Into Darkness got 72. The original Oz got 100, so. <laughs> I, I, whatever. Okay. Uh, the budget to make this movie was $250 million. Estimated opening weekend draw was $79 million, what it brought in. Uh, gross to date, uh, $233 million in America, $490 million worldwide as of June 7, 2013. So this movie, it stars uh, James Franco. And, and uh, he is the main character, uh, Oscar Diggs, or, or Oz. Uh, he was on General Hospital, for those of you who don't, don't get out of the house at all. Uh, he was also on 127 Hours. The best part is when he cut his arm off. He's also in Rise of the Planet of the Apes. Uh, this is The End, uh, which is the latest movie that came out with him in it. Uh, Robert Downey Jr. and Johnny Depp were both offered the role before him, and they both turned it down. Uh, this is Mila Kunis. You might recognize her from the 70s show. Ted, Book of Mormon, or I mean Book of Eli. Uh, actually, before they gave uh, uh, her the th role of Theodora to her, they offered the role to Olivia Wilde, Amy Adams, Blake Lively, Kate Beckinsale, and Kira Knightley. So apparently, you know, I don't know if I'd take it at that point, really. I'm like the sixth one down the thing. Uh, Evan Nora is played by Rachel Weiss. They almost kind of look the same, don't they? It's kind of interesting, yeah. Uh, she was in The Born Legacy, The Lovely Bones, Constantine, uh, The Mummy Movies. Okay, she was in, in those. Uh, Hilary Swank uh, and Michelle Williams were actually uh, Sam Raimi's first choice to play Evan Nora. And eventually they gave Michelle Williams the, the role of Glenda which you'll see in just a moment. Uh, Rachel Rice actually got the script. She read through the script and auditioned for the role. She had a two-hour conversation and lobbied trying to get this job so she could actually be in this movie because she wanted to have this part. And so Michelle Williams, uh, she plays Annie and Glenda in this movie. Uh, she was in the movie My Week with Marilyn, if you guys saw that. Uh, Shutter Island. Uh, she's also in Dawson's Creek. All right, great. I'm glad you guys didn't clap for that. Uh, Blake Lively was awful, also off of the role of Glenda, but she did a movie called Savages, which tanked instead. Uh, Zach Braff uh, uh, plays Frank and Finley. There, here he is in his most known role, which is in Scrubs. Uh, exactly. Uh, John C. Riley was also uh, considered for the role that he has in this movie. Now, the movie is directed by Sam Raimi. Okay, there's Sam Raimi. Sam Raimi, uh, he did the first three Spider-Man movies. Not the good one that just came out, but the first three. He also did Xena, uh, The Evil Dead. 
Or not, whatever. Okay, I like the Evil Dead. Uh, this is Sam Raimi's first moment to be rated PG in the United States of America. The first one. All his previous ones were PG-13 or R. Uh, Danny Elfman did the music and the soundtrack for Oz. Uh, it actually, when they, when they were back to read Spider-Man 2, uh, Danny Elfman was doing the music for it, and Sam Raimi and them had a little tiff about the music, and they had this rift between them, and this movie actually brought them back together and made them reconcile. Now, interesting things about the movie. At the start of the film, Oz works at a circus company called Bomb Brothers Circus. This is a reference to uh, uh, L. Frank Baum, who actually wrote Oz. Uh, Warner Brothers owns the rights and the elements to the 1939 MGM Wizard of Oz, including the ruby slippers uh, worn by Judy Garland. And so Disney was unable to use them or any character likenesses from that film. Okay, so uh, the green on the Wicked Witch, it is sufficiently different from the Wicked Witch of the West in the, in the uh, Warner Brothers MGM one that their legal department said it's okay for her to be green now. There is no wart on her chin because that was part of the MGM one and they were not allowed to use it. So there's all kinds of things that to be really careful about what they were doing in this movie. Um, Oz's assistant, Frank, is also named for Frank Baum, the writer of the book. Uh, Michelle Williams' character, Annie, is married to a man named Gail. Uh, Dorothy in the Oz books is named Dorothy Gale. All right, uh, Zach Braff and, and Joey King are on the set to record their dialogue simultaneously together with other actors. And whenever their CG characters were in scene, uh, they were actually present in that scene and they were talking off the stage so that their voices were actually there and part of it so the actors could react to their voices. Uh, all the times that you see a little China girl on the set, what they used, it wasn't really a green screen thing. They used a puppet. And so there's a puppet there the whole time where that China girl is just to give everybody reference. Uh, now, uh, Mila Kunis's Wicked Witch prosthetic and her makeup demanded four hours to, to apply, another hour to remove afterwards, and it took her two months for her skin to fully recover after the movie was done. Yeah, yeah, sad. Okay, uh... <laughs> Uh, Lance Burton uh, trained James Franco to be a, mag a magician before this movie started. He spent months with him. Uh, this, you guys don't care about, so I'm just going to go on. Uh, there, there's a couple things in here which, which are just kind of interesting I'm not going to talk about. Um, during the, the scene that you'll see where the hot air balloon is up in the tornado, uh, Remy follows the point of view of one of the posts from the picket fence. So that when you see things swirling around, that's, you're one of the picket fence pieces that's kind of swirling around in there. Um, a couple things that are like the uh, first movie that are the same in this one is the Wicked Witch of the West is Green. She travels via a fire cloud, shoots fireballs, as well as rides a smoking broom, but they're all just a little bit different. Uh, Glenda the Good travels by magic bubble. Whatever. Uh, multicolored horses appear in a pasture outside the Emerald City. Uh, the Munchkins will perform a musical number for you. It's all for your enjoyment. There you go. Um, the sign, the constant reference to the, the road of yellow brick as a yellow brick road, uh, Baum never called it that. Uh, that's just kind of invention that everybody starts calling the yellow brick road that when it was actually the, the road of yellow bricks. Uh, and the design of the Emerald City, uh, the Wizard's Throne, all of his methods are taken from the 1939 movie as much as the legal department can get away with without being sued. So, uh, let's pray and we'll start the movie. Uh, Jesus, thank you for cinema. Uh, thank you for people being creative uh, because you are a good creator. And we ask that as we enjoy movies, we ask that this one would be one of those enjoyable movies. And that uh, tonight you would have us be people who honor you uh, because of the creativity that you have given to your people. Amen. Here you go. I was told they actually tried to act 
bad in some scenes because they wanted it to be more like it was an older school movie. So, success. <laughs> I know when I watched it, I look at my wife and I just go, "Oh my goodness!" But I knew I had to talk about it, so I had to watch the whole thing. It's, it's, it's not bad. I mean, especially if you, you know, saw the original. I mean, there, there's a whole lot of things that you miss, you know, kind of between the two. Any takeaways that you guys have? I was like, I wasn't supposed to think, was I? <laughs> Self? Yeah. Okay, so, so studios, they, they make movies for one reason. What is it? Make money, exactly. And that's, but you've got to think on the backside, you know, why is a story like this so powerful? I mean, uh, Baum writes these books over 100 years ago, you know, and, and they're still popular. And I think there's key themes in those that still connect to our culture today. Uh, you know, today we, we have like these terms like global economic crisis and terrorism that are commonplace and our world kind of spirals downwards and loses itself and its spirituality and emotionally cling. We just come along. We try and grab onto stories of hope because we want something that's like something greater and something more and you know, the wonderful wizard's going to come and save us all. Uh, you know, I, and, and kind of in, in this view, it's like they're, they're waiting – for somebody, maybe like the government, that's there to keep them safe and provide for them. And, but then there's other people on the back side of that that you look at everybody pulling together to come and, and bring something new and great. And, and you know, you got these two dichotomies, and they're kind of always you know, pushing against each other. And you look at the story of the Wizard of Oz, and it's like a, a sense of hope. And there's all these promises of escape and about the pursuit of restoration. Uh, there's actually a recent uh, documentary, that, and it's called Yellow Brick Road and Beyond. And it's by, and I am not making this up, an Oz historian. Okay? His name is Carlos Larkin, and he summarizes the film's premise. And it's that, and he says, It's a story about finding oneself and the journey that ensues and the discovery that the answers for which we've been searching have always been within us. And I think that summation summarizes why Oz itself is so broken. Exactly right there. I mean, there's this theological quest and a spiritual quest, you know, if you will, for the wholeness. And, and that's central in a lot of the books as well in the movie. And that's kind of makes it appeal, you know, where's the quest to make us whole, to make everything right? But I think all these quests ends up back in the same exact spot that caused all the problems in the first place, which is the self. You know, in Oz, everyone has lost something different. They all, they're all feeling broken and they're all feeling alone. And without question, you go through the movie, and there's probably something relatable to all of it in the land of Oz. I mean, you can think the acting is bad, and the writing, writing is poor, and the special effects are lacking, and all those things. But, but in a sense, you connect because we can kind of see ourselves in the midst of all of these things. Uh, you know, from the old one to the new one, the emptiness and the tin man, the, the courage-impaired lion, uh, the broken china girl, the disenchanted witch that turns evil, the abused monkey. And this one, feel bad for the monkey. The whole movie. I think, I think every character in the movie offers you a portrait of our culture's deepest pain in one sense or another. And all this longing that, that they want to be made whole and the hope. And I think all of this comes down to issues of our own heart and how we see ourselves in the world around us. I mean, the film carries a heavy theme of good versus evil. I mean, our, our culture has progressed so far to a place that, that relativism seems normal. You know, all the lines of good and evil are, are kind of, you know, just merged together. In the original Wizard of Oz, you have definitive good and a definitive evil. You know, you have Glenda the Good, you have the Wicked Witch who is evil. In this line, it kind of just all goes together, and it kind of mushes together. And, we, and because we now have this world that's morally complex... 
You know, it's, it's like, can intentionally misleading people actually be recognized as good and the motivation be honorable? I mean, because that's one of the things that they do in the movie. You know, Diggs himself in the movie suggests it doesn't matter if things are real as long as they are believable. You know, the, the, this ethical dilemma is not just in the narrative. The, the characters themselves are deeply rooted in these inner conflicts. And it's kind of really possible, you know, in the midst of the movie and these things to appear good and repress this seething darkness that kind of sits down inside and it yearns to break free. You know, what, what of those who appear to be evil? Do they have an inner goodness inside of them that's viewed as redemptive despite all of their little failings? And the primary example of all this in the movie comes from this guy, Oz, himself. He's recognized by a fake, by those know, who know him the best, especially himself, right? But that, but that recognition of, of his self and his falseness seems to come and go. Even at the end of the movie, he says to Glenda, I've saved the best for last, himself. And it's like, really? Have you learned nothing this entire process? I mean, Oscar, throughout the movie, he doesn't, you know, label a man like himself as someone who wants to do bad things, although he does, but he characterizes himself as someone who desires to achieve greatness, is what he wants to do. And it's only after he begins to wrestle with this conflict of his heart and his actions that his true self is eventually revealed. Now, throughout the scriptures, the word heart and its derivatives are used 900 times. When nine, something's 900 times in the scriptures, that means it's important. Like, if you were to drive to Mexico and everybody says, well, don't drink the water... It's important that you don't drink the water. You know, today we think we can fix our hearts to want the right things. Do you know, there's schools of thought out there that try and come along and and they fix our hearts to make us all better from Freud to Skinner to Young. Do you know how many schools of thought there are out there about how to fix you and, and do all that? Over 300. Over 300. Normal versus abnormal versus treatment. And now we know why we're all screwed up. <laughs> right, because n- nobody knows. You know, we don't know where, what we're trying to produce. We don't know how to get there. We don't know where we're going. And every system says you blame something other than the individual. It's not really my fault. It's really that other thing over there. It's my parents made me this way. My my wife made me yell at her because she wouldn't stop. You know, Oz made me wicked by spurning me. My sister turned me evil because I ate that apple. Kind of sounds biblical there too. You know. You know, the Bible deals completely differently with issues of our heart. It says the root of a lot of the problems in the world comes down to the central issue of our hearts. Uh, and on Sunday morning, I'm going to talk about this just a tiny bit, but, but uh, Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? This is the idea that in the core of who we are, we're essentially broken. And the heart is this poetic way of saying throughout the scriptures, it's your center, it's your essence, it's your nature, it's like the root of the matter. Proverbs 27, 19 says, as water reflects a face, so a man's heart reflects the man. And so, you know, your, your heart, if you really look at it, gives you a good image of who you really are. Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. The wellspring was like this ever-flowing source of fresh water. And yet sometimes that can turn into an ever-flowing source of sewage. Your life and your heart are deeply connected. And you can't stop the effects in your life without addressing the issues of your heart. People say, well, I don't want to drink, or I don't want to look at pornography, or I don't want to gossip, or I don't want to lie. Proverbs says all of those things flow out of your heart and what's in the center of you. And instead of becoming good legalists where it's like, well, I just won't do those things, we need to deal with the issue of our heart. Proverbs 21, verse 2, all a man's ways seem right to him, but the Lord weighs the heart. 
This could be the idea that you're running around very legalistic, doing all the right things, but God weighs the heart. Proverbs 20, verse 9, Who can say, I have kept my heart pure and I am clean and without sin? I mean, all of these sayings come back. You know, as a Christian, we have this wrestling match between good and evil, you know, kind of in the midst of our hearts, and it connects on all these different levels, especially when we consider the old self who we were before Christ and the new self that we are supposed to be. We are forgiven by Jesus, yet we still experience all this tension between doing the good things and not doing the good things, being bound by our old habitual sin. I mean, the Apostle Paul echoes a statement when he says, We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do for what I want to do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I, but what I hate to do, I do. I mean, it's just like this whole thing. I don't want to do it, but I keep doing it. What's going on? I mean, Paul recognizes his desires to be a better man. And I don't know if Oscar Diggs in the end ever really does. I don't know. Because that, that line at the very end of the movie, hey, I'm going to give you the best, and that's me. I think a major reason Paul realizes his ability to do good uh, is doesn't come from himself because he realizes the freedom he has comes from the person of Christ and the redemption that he experiences in the person of God. Now, I think the story we tell always, all the stories that we always tell kind of always steal a little bit from Jesus. You've know, got the young girl in the beginning, you know, can you, can you heal my legs? I'm not that kind, and he, and he wants to run away from it. And then later it comes back around and he does heal her legs. Everybody's looking for a savior. Everyone's looking for a Messiah that's supposed to, you know, do this. And, and Oscar Digg has this gigantic ego, and yet he's not sure he really wants to step into those roles. And so in the end, you know, he, he realizes that, okay, well, you know, it's, I, I'm not the one you're looking for, but maybe I'm the one that you need, but the one that they need is apparently just smoke and mirrors. I mean, getting to the point where, where Oscar Digg apparently dies and resurrects, you know, all stealing from, from the Christ story. You know, I, and again, I think it's that whole idea that he's not the wizard they're expecting to be, he was the one that they needed. But that's ultimately true of Christ and the issue of our hearts. Because I think that many times Jesus isn't the Savior we're looking for. You know, we don't, we don't want a God who says, I'm going to save you, period. I'm going to offer you complete grace. It doesn't matter on your effort. It matters what my effort and what I have done for you. He is the God that we truly need because that brings restorations to our hearts. I mean, this is the idea. We need some to examine our hearts and give us a true assessment of who we are and what it actually takes to set us free from the bondage to the Emerald City. The witches are the blind leading the blind. You know, just like we are when we tell people stupid things like, follow your heart. I'll tell you where your heart leads you, right, to Oscar Diggs. And this is what the things that the scriptures teach you. In 1 Corinthians one twenty four, that Jesus was the wisdom of God in human flesh. In Mark 13 and Mark 6, it uh, teaches that Jesus taught wisdom from God the Father. In Matthew 12.42, Jesus' wisdom was greater than that of even Solomon's. Matthew 15, John 5, Acts 1, Acts 15, it says that Jesus alone knows the folly of our hearts in Colossians 2.3, we are invited by Jesus to, to mine all the treasures of God's wisdom and knowledge. And that is the good news. That's the gospel. Because we're, we're honest about our hearts, we need good news. And the good news is that God has promised that he would come and give us a new heart. That he would take away all the callousness that's upon our hearts. So that we can actually see ourselves as we are, our God as he truly is. And our lives can actually begin to change. And I, and I think as, as I watched the movie, my wife and I were talking about this last night, about just some different things. And so I thought I'd try and wrap this up in a way that kind of relates to the movie. So uh, there was once another land long, long ago that was waiting for the arrival of someone. 
Whoever they weren't awaiting a wizard, they were awaiting a Messiah. And when that Messiah did arrive, he wasn't quite what they were expecting. In fact, he was so far from what they were expecting that those who heralded his arrival had their doubts. And in the end, they turned up wanting to kill him. When they asked Jesus how they could know if he was the one, his response was interesting. He said, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. It's in Luke chapter 7. In short, people can know he was the one because of his actions. And I think that's still true today. That we can still know who Jesus is because of the things that he did, and he still changes hearts and lives for eternity. Now the first hint that Oz might actually be the great and powerful one came when he made the lame, the lame walk. See the parallel? A little bit. You know, one of the many proofs that Jesus Christ is as who he said he was is that when he came, the lame walked, the blind saw, and he saved our souls for eternity. And again, I think the movie is just one more case of fiction echoing reality. And our hearts are self-centered, and Jesus longs to make us Christ-centered because only then will we be free. Only then will the emerald city of our lives actually experience the freedom they're supposed to have. Because if you get to the next movie in The Wizard of Oz, you know, what happens? Everything's kind of in bondage again. You know, the, the wizard's this guy. Is he really there? Is he ever get, really going to show up? There, and see, Jesus is an ever-present reality in his people's lives. And we are to live lives of true freedom because we have truly been set free. Anybody have anything else? I just talked for a long time. It's like, yeah, that was great. You go. <laughs> I think sometimes Christians, I mean, really, if we think about it, we are in an alien world. And we're supposed to live Christ-like lives and, and and be as godly as possible. And we're like, no, I can't because I'm not. I'm not. Yeah, it's it's almost like we're the people, we're the munchkins in the, in the other little kingdom. It's like, what are those crazy? How are those people ever going to, you know, be part of an army that's going to set this place free? You know, they they sow, they you know, they're tinkers. What are they going to do? And yet, in the end. You know, it was, you know, the weak who were strong. Anybody else? That was awesome. I think it was, oh, sorry, I think it was interesting when they were in the bubble thing and they were going to try, you know, she said, oh, if only the good, good in heart can get through. And I think a lot of people feel that way about heaven. If I'm just good enough, yeah. I can get in there. And he did barely make it into the safe place. When the truth is, if we were all in those bubbles, none of us would make it through. And we'd be like, well, this sucks. <laughs> and we just stuck outside. Yeah, and a lot of the movie also was based upon personal goodness. You know, oh, I'm good enough. I can do these things. I can make things possible. Oh, you have good in you. And, you know, the part of the realization when we come to Christ is that, you know what, there is, there is this vestige of you and I being made in the image of God. And so, you know, we have this conscience that rests upon us. But, but in the end, you know, our goodness is kind of just filthy rags. And so we need to be people who understand that we lay all of that at the feet of Christ. You know, and then and then and the good works that we do do, it's because of Him doing them in and through us. You know that that our goodness is really nothing to brag about. Looking looking at it from a, a different side, um, I saw the 
tinkers and the farmers and the munchkins as being simple, plain folk. Mm -hmm. And I believe God can use us as simple farmers and tinkers and munchkins to work his great plan for his good. See? All you guys should get up and talk about that. <laughs> In the beginning, uh, Oz had that uh, need for significance expressed. They wanted to be not just a farmer, not just a, there's a, something inside. Probably all of us, for us, want to be something more than we... Something great. Yes. Yeah. Want to be great. And, you know, and I, do, I think everybody has that deep down inside of them, you know, that... You know, oh, one day someone's going to tell me that this wasn't my family. I'm really a son of a king who, uh, you know. But the truth is, you are the son of a king. You know, I mean, that's 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 the beauty of it. You know, as, and our king comes and he lives a, a simple life, you know. Okay, next month is 42. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's supposed to, I haven't seen it. It's supposed to be a really good movie. Uh, I'm actually, uh, one of the books I'm reading right now has a biography, uh, uh the whole thing kind of, kind of in there. So I'm interested. I haven't got to that part of the book, but I'm looking forward to it because it's, it's called, uh, uh seven great men and their stories or something like that. It's by Eric Metaxas and he, and he's one of them. So I'm, I'm really interested to, to see it. So that's next month. I think Mikey's doing that one. Yeah. You Okay. <laughs> Uh, do you guys know that – so there's this concert tomorrow. It's like Daughtry. Stan Lee's part of it. And Donald is, is going to be doing Superman, but he was interviewing Stan Lee. And I said, I said, Donald, you should have got Stan Lee to say, come to Elements Film and Theology for Iron Man 3. That would just been perfect. <laughs> he goes, I think they would have fired me if I did that. And I go, okay, well, whatever. It would be cool. Uh, let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you so much, uh, again, for being a God who allows us to see truth in the midst of the things around us. I ask that we wouldn't be those who mindlessly consume entertainment, but we'd be those who actually see uh, the hearts of people who are longing for certain things, that when movies or TV shows are really popular, we can look at what the message is and what people are grasping onto. And then, in turn, we can understand how you have come uh, to be the God who makes us whole and puts us together again. We thank you for your goodness that is given to us and that it does not rest upon our goodness that makes you love and like and redeem and save us. But it's simply because you are so good. Amen.